Our Old Testament lesson this morning is Genesis 16, verses 1 to 16, and comes at a strange point in the history of uh, Abraham and his family. God has already promised to him to give him descendants at number as many as the stars in the sky. But at this point, he still has no kids. And he is way too old to be having kids. So what does this mean? And where does he go? Well, this is, like I say, Genesis 16, verses 1 through 16. And before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made, and we thank you for your word that you have given to us. Lord, this morning we ask that you would, uh, that you would help us as we hear your word read and proclaimed, that you would help us to hear it, or that you would help us to understand it, or that you would help us to receive it into our hearts and our lives, or that by your word and by your spirit, we would be changed evermore even today into the people that you have created us to be in relationship with you through Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 16, verses 1 through 16. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Turning then to our New Testament reading. Romans 6 verses 1 through 14. After Paul has 
We've been writing to the church in Rome explaining that Jews and Gentiles alike have both fallen short of the glory of God and needed uh, salvation. And yet, uh, that's what exactly what we have in Jesus for both Jews and Gentiles. And that uh, we have been justified through faith, he says in chapter 5, and have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And uh, we have been saved by grace. But then, in case somebody goes, so then we just keep sinning and it doesn't matter, right? He answers that. This is Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under the law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are days in our lives when everything changes. Just hearing that sentence, you may have a day in your own life that springs to mind. There are days in our lives when everything changes. Sometimes it's really good, and sometimes not so much. And so uh, we have days uh, like a wedding, when you walk in as two individuals and you walk out as a married couple, and everything changes. (laughs) There's a day when a baby is born and your family changes. There's the day uh, when you graduate and everything changes. The world that you once knew is completely different. These are days, though, uh, that are good and that you can see coming. Of course, there are also days that aren't so good that you see coming. Ones where there's been a slow decline preceding a death. Either a death of a loved one or even just a death of a dream. And there's the day that changes everything, but you saw it coming. 
But often the days that change everything are things that we don't see coming. And uh, that could just be the day that the doctor says, I have some bad news. It could be the day that there is some tragedy in your family or in the family of someone you love. But the unexpected days that change everything don't have to be bad either. (laughs) There are unexpected uh, times where it changes everything. You get that unexpected job offer and you end up moving into a situation that seems like God had prepared for you from forever. We know what it's like to have a day that changes everything. And in fact, we don't just have one of those days in our lives, do we? Even as I've been rattling these off, you probably have had several others that have come up in your own mind where you say, oh, I remember when this happened or this happened. And we have kind of these milestones that even as we tell our story, there are these turning points. This is when everything changed. We go a different direction. This morning we're going to be talking about the day that changed everything. (laughs) And we're going to be talking about it specifically of how it changed in the life of one person, but how that um, affects us all. We're looking at Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene is someone who, uh, Luke tells us, Jesus had cast seven demons out of her. What does that mean? We don't have time for that right now. (laughs) But he had already changed her life. And uh, if you want a good artistic depiction of what that might have been like, I highly recommend watching episode one of The Chosen. But anyway. (laughs) Um, But that had had already happened in her life. She had been following him uh, since then. She had been present as Jesus had died on the cross, and she had been there the morning that the empty tomb was discovered. She's one of the people who discovered the empty tomb. And we looked at that last week, that the tomb was empty, and I had said, you know, if all we had to go on is the tomb is empty, I'm not sure that's enough to go on, at least not for everybody. For some people, sure. Some of us, myself included, we need a little bit more. And that's what we're looking at over the next six weeks is uh, <laughs> a lot more that we have. And this is uh, John chapter 20, verses 11 to 18. Uh, Peter and John had already come to the tomb. They had seen. John had already believed. I think Peter was just not sure what to think. They leave. And Mary goes back to the tomb. Starting in verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. 
Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. There's obviously a change of emotion in this story as you go through from verse 11 to verse 18. And there is a moment where everything changes. But first, we're going to look at how things were before that moment occurs. And this is when Mary is weeping. And she is grieving. And she is still, uh, she has seen the empty tomb, but she has not come to the conclusion that Jesus has raised from the dead. She has seen the same evidence that John has seen, but for her, she comes to a different conclusion. For her, she's thinking still, someone must have taken him. That's the only possible explanation. Someone must have taken his body. And so, it's kind of a bad to worse situation where it's bad enough that this guy that we thought was going to be the one to redeem Israel, he was going to be the savior. He was going to be the Messiah. That's who we thought he was. And then he got arrested and he got beaten and he got killed. And now we see that Rome just always wins. And so she's sad enough about that. She's sad enough that she's lost her close friend, the person who has made such a huge difference in her life and the life of so many that she's seen. But then bad to worse is she didn't even know where he's gone. Somebody has robbed the grave, taken his body, put it somewhere else. Bad to worse. And so she's standing there crying. But it says as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. You would think this might be the moment where things change. But no. Have you ever suspected that if you saw an angel sitting there, that maybe your day would be a little different than it was before? (laughs) I kind of expect that from her, right? That she looks in there, and it used to be empty, and now she looks in there, and there are two angels in white. There are some people who have said, well, she probably didn't really see angels. She probably, you know, it's one seat at the head, one at the foot, and that's where the the cloths were that we had just read about. So probably, you know, she's crying and she's got tears in her eyes and she looks at these cloths and they kind of maybe look like white angels, right? That, that makes sense, doesn't it? No, that doesn't make sense. That would make sense, except for the next verse where whatever it is she's seeing talks to her. So unless we're going to say they're talking cloths, that explanation doesn't work. So she sees these angels sitting there. She sees... Uh, people dressed in white, uh, clearly an indication of some sort of heavenly messenger. Does she recognize it, though? Doesn't appear to be the case. Instead, they ask her, woman, why are you crying? That's a great question. Woman, why are you crying? If she had understood what was actually the case, would she have been crying? If she knew that Jesus had raised from the dead, that that's what was going on, would she still be crying? 
I suspect not. In fact, we see later in this passage when she realizes that is the case, there's no more reference of her crying. So the reason that she's crying is because she doesn't know what's taken place. The reason for her grief is also her hopelessness is because of her assumptions of how things were. She had assumed that someone had stolen the body. She had assumed that Jesus was still dead. Neither neither of those were true. But that's what she had assumed to be the case. And because of that, she's crying. And because of that, she is hopeless. Even after talking with the angels, still, she says, they've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. And at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. All right, this is going to be the moment where everything changes, right? Because now she's going to realize that her assumptions were wrong. No. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, see if this sounds familiar. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Word for word. Why are you crying? And then he says, who is it you're looking for? It seems like in that question, there's got to be a twinkle in the eye, a smile on the face. And he's like, hello. (laughs) Who are you looking for? Of course, it doesn't register to her at all that this is who it is that's speaking to her. And so, once again, logical, Mary Magdalene putting the pieces together uh, as she takes a look at the situation. He must be the gardener. Jesus has been buried in this tomb, in this garden. This must be the guy who's in charge of taking care of the place. He must know something. Maybe he's the guy who ended up having to move him to somewhere else. Maybe uh, at least he would know who it is. And so thinking he's the gardener, she says, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Same question. Slightly different answers. Someone has done this. Maybe it was this guy who did it, who took the body away. But the same hopelessness. Do you hear this? Angels have spoken to her. The risen Lord Jesus has spoken to her. And still in her head, Jesus is dead and gone. She is still just as hopeless, even after talking with angels and with Jesus. And now are you ready for it? the moment where everything changes. Jesus said to her, Mary. That's it. Mary. And everything changes. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Even when you're just reading it on the page, I think the joy comes through. When she goes from this moment of thinking everything is lost to this moment of realizing he's right there. Have you ever seen the, uh, the videos? I love these. These make me cry every time. The, uh, the videos where you have a, um, 
a soldier who's been deployed who comes home and surprises his family member somehow. They don't know he's coming home. Oh my goodness. Gets me every time. I love those. Anyway, it's that kind of a moment. She is not expecting him at all. And when he says her name, the whole world changes. The whole way that she has perceived everything up until that moment changes. And she is face to face with a person she thought she'd never see again. And she cries out, Rabboni, which means teacher. Um, there is, in literary terms, catastrophe, which is kind of a moment when everything sort of changes, typically in a bad way. Uh, the author of Lord of the Rings, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, he actually created a new word called eucatastrophe, and it's combining the, the EU prefix meaning good. And so it's like a, a good moment when everything changes kind of thing. And you can see that in, uh, in some of his writings, particularly in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. But in talking about eucatastrophe, Tolkien says that the incarnation of Jesus, Jesus taking on flesh, that this is the eucatastrophe of human history. And he says the resurrection of Jesus is the eucatastrophe of the incarnation. This is the moment. And Mary gets to experience it personally. Experience this moment personally as he says her name. And we have to be reminded of Hagar back in Genesis 16 saying, I have seen the Lord who sees me as Jesus says her name. This is the moment, as I say, we don't hear about her crying anymore. And uh, we read from Psalm 30 earlier um, in our call to worship. It says, Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. And again, you turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. I think this is a pretty good description of what she's going through in this moment. But it's also something that we all have to look forward to. Because if you turn to Genesis, or <laughs> forward to Revelation, in uh, Revelation 20, talking about the new creation, this is one of the things that we're pretty familiar with. Says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. This is what we have to look forward to. That all of us will have this moment where the weeping and the crying is over. We're not there yet. That's still to come. But that is to come. At this point, Jesus says uh, to Mary. Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Don't hold on to me. Why not? <laughs> if there was ever a time to give somebody a big hug, surely this is it. 
if you've ever watched one of those uh, videos where a soldier comes home from deployment and surprises the family members, there's always a hug. And Jesus says, do not hold on to me. I don't think Jesus means don't give me a hug. I think he means don't try to keep me here. There's still more to do. And in fact, when he says what's coming next, he says, go instead, or I've not yet ascended to my father, go instead tell my brothers, I'm ascending to my father and your father, my God and your God. This is what Jesus still has to do. Yes, he's been raised from the dead, but he is still there in the garden. He needs to be at the right hand of the Father. Why? A couple of reasons for this, but here's one. You remember in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus is talking and says, you are the salt of the earth, uh, you are the light of the world. And he says, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house, right? So you have this idea of a uh, light that is shining, but if you put it under a bowl, where all does that light go? Just to the inside of the bowl, and that's it. And all the darkness is still around. They said, no, instead you take this light and you put it up on a stand, and then it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, he says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. But I think this is also what's happening with the, resur- or with the ascension of Jesus as he goes and ascends to the right hand of the Father in heaven. That while he is still in, um, in the garden there with Mary, how far does this light shine? There in the garden. Anybody who's around can see that. <laughs> but it's when he ascends to the right hand of the Father in heaven that now he can be, as he says to the disciples at the end of uh, Matthew 28, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. The disciples, you will see, will go all over the world. And Jesus says, I will be with you. Well, he can't do that if Mary holds on to him. (laughs) But if he ascends to the Father, he can be with everyone, everywhere, at all times. It's a whole different way of being able to relate to his people. And so he says, this is what has to happen. Don't keep me here. Uh, There's something even better coming. There's another part of this too. This is the message that he gives to Mary. That Jesus is ascending to the Father. He doesn't say, you know, go and uh, tell my disciples, shame on you. Why did you not believe that he was going to raise me? He didn't tell them, uh, go tell my disciples, uh, here's the parts of your life that need to get fixed up. He didn't tell you know, go and um, make sure you impress upon them how important it is to vote for a particular political candidate. This is not the message. What is the message? Is go and tell them that I'm ascending to my father. What are they going to make of that? Well, hopefully... They remember Daniel 7. Do you remember Daniel 7? Daniel 7, we go to a lot, especially in talking about Jesus as uh, identifying himself as the Son of Man. Because this is the vision that Daniel has of all of these worldly rulers 
that keep ruling over the people in the same way as beasts that are just trampling. Trampling and devouring. That is the way that uh, human rulers have been ruling. And it doesn't matter. You get, uh, whether it's uh, Babylon or Persia or Greece or Rome, they're just like beasts, devouring and trampling the people. But, it says, but then, in my vision and I, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. When Jesus says, go and tell my disciples that I am ascending to the Father, this is what ought to be ringing in their ears. This is what they ought to be thinking about, that finally the king, the true king, has come to the land. And that his kingdom that will never end has begun. This is the message. And so verse 18, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. This was the day that everything changed. This is the day that everything changed when death was defeated. The powers of sin and evil were defeated in this world. And the day when Jesus begins his reign as king of his kingdom. And what he tells Mary to do Go tell people. If you have been reading along in the Gospel of Mark this week, one of the things that you'll notice that always seems strange to people is how many times as Jesus is going along uh, healing people, he will say to them, don't tell anybody. Or when uh, demons will cry out, I know who you are. He's like, no, no, don't tell anybody. (laughs) Like, why does he keep saying don't tell anybody? And it's all because the crucifixion and the resurrection hadn't happened yet. After Jesus is raised from the dead, after this kingdom has begun, he doesn't tell people not to tell. From then on, it is go and tell, go and tell, go and tell. And so we are those who have been given that same uh, command, that same commission, to proclaim this good news. It's not about manipulation. It's not about a sales pitch. It's not about trying to get people to sign up for our thing or our team. That's not it. It's just announcing the good news that Jesus has been raised from the dead and has ascended to the right hand of the Father. The kingdom of heaven has begun, and the one person in all of human history who should be the king is the king. This is good news, that he knows us, that he is with us, that he is ruling, and that his kingdom will never be destroyed. This is good news. Earlier we said that Mary was hopeless because of her assumptions. Things that happened that day 
in that garden, in the history of the world, in that garden that she didn't know about yet. And her assumptions had led her into hopelessness, in despair, into sorrow and grief. Look at the hopelessness. Look at the hopelessness of our world today. This past year has brought on amazing levels of grief in all kinds of ways. We are in the middle of a hurting and grieving world, and we are not immune to the pains either. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. Thanks. But take heart, I have overcome the world. We need both parts of that in mind always. Yes, we will have trouble. Yes, we will have sorrow. We will have grief. But take heart, I have overcome the world. In the world, uh, in the world that does not remember this or does not know this, that grief and that sorrow turns into despair and turns into hopelessness. And that's where it is our job and it is our honor and privilege to get to say to a hopeless and despairing, grieving, hurting world, We've got good news. So let's share it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.